our question for today is really, is God a he, a she, or an it? Um, or I'm going to add to that one more possibility. Is God a he, she, it, or both, they? So which one is it? Which one is it? Everything. All of the above. So none of the above. Okay, so I see I've... This is one of those questions that everyone wants to offer an answer. Ellie, go ahead. Okay, there is a passage in Siddur, in Gidai Ron Chai, and look mood, and look goof, now I love. Right? No image, no body. God has no body. If he has no body, God cannot have gender. Very good point. So you are absolutely right. God, in truth, as Ellie points out, but, but, God, but man is made in God's image, and therefore... You are also right. Man is made in God's image. Man and woman is made in God's image. Yeah, and, and God presents, or demonstrates himself in different aspects. You are right, too. Yes. And therefore, he can be... So he's all of the above. So firstly, it's important to note that God is truly beyond gender. As Ellie pointed out correctly, as Ellie pointed out correctly, it is a basic belief in Judaism. My money is counted as one of our 13 principles of faith that God has no form whatsoever. God has no form. As Eli said, en lo guf, en lo demuta. Guf, he has no form. Moses says it later when this, in Va'etchanan, in Deuteronomy, when describing the story of the Ten Commandments, of God giving the Ten Commandments that, and, and Sinai, that, God, you, that there is no form to God. There is no detail to God whatsoever. God stands above and beyond any human characteristics that we know of. So God cannot be described in any way. In fact, to take it even further, not only does God have no human characteristics and no body, God has no detail at all. No descriptive words can be used to describe God because God has no details. God is only what we call ensof or infinite. God is beyond any details. God is beyond anything that we can imagine. Because we can only picture or imagine detail. We cannot imagine something without detail. Perhaps a good English word that we could use to describe God would be absolute. God is absolute. Beyond any form, any detail. Beyond time, beyond space. God is not in any time, in any place does not look like anything, does not have any details whatsoever. We cannot imagine God. We cannot picture God. We, of course, cannot see God, not physically see God, because God does not reflect light as every other physical thing that we see. Nor is there any other way to measure God. You can only measure something's limits. You can measure how long it is. In other words, where it ends. If something would be unlimit, uh, infinitely long, there would be no le- way to measure its length. God is not just infinitely long. God is infinitely everything. God is ultimate infinity beyond time, beyond space, beyond everything. And so therefore, by definition, if God is beyond everything, God and God is an absolute being, an infinite being, 
God has no gender. Yes, Carol? Then how can God have a voice? That is a very good question. If God is beyond everything, how then do we describe God with a voice? We describe God as having a hand. We describe God as um, the hand of God, the finger of God. We also ascribe to God human characteristics. We say God got angry. God loves. God hates. God, um, uh, and we have different emotions ascribed to God. We speak of the feet of God, the chair of God. In fact, we speak of God as a man. In last week's parsha, actually, we said, Hashem ish milchama. God is a man of war. God is a man. That's what it said. So why, how can we describe God in all of these forms? And throughout Scripture, we describe God time and again in many, including God hearing, God seeing, God speaking, God's voice. So how can we describe God in any of these ways if, as we know, God is beyond um, any description whatsoever? No description is accurate for God. Do you want to answer the question, or do you have another question? I have another question. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Understand how you then reconcile uh, what was said here that man was created in the image of God, or was he created in the imagination of God? Very good. What does it mean? Was man created in the image of God? I will get to that question in just a moment. Let's deal with one at a time. Thank you. So, so why, how then do we use gender? So this is a question that Jewish thinkers have thought about, of course, and um, discussed forever. Uh, perhaps the most prominent discussion of this, or the most um, um, quoted discussion of this, is that of Maimonides in his book called Moren Nevuchim. Moren Nevuchim is a book of Jewish philosophy um, called Guide to the Perplexed in English. Um, and it's a book of Jewish philosophy written by Maimonides or the Rambam. And in Moreno Vuchim, the Rambam, at the very beginning, um, deals with exactly this question. If God is beyond any details, and beyond, God is beyond any description whatsoever, how then do we have descriptions for God? And so he quotes the Talmud that says that, indeed, God is beyond description whatsoever. However, we still want to need to describe God's interaction with us. We need to describe God from a human perspective, from a way that we can speak of God. And so in order to describe God from a human perspective, we use human metaphor. But it's only meant as a metaphor. It's not meant really. It's not when we say God has a hand, we don't mean um, God's hand. In last week's portion, when Parsha when the, um, God split the sea, it says, Vayar Yisrael is Hayat Hagadola. Israel saw the great hand of God. 
They didn't see God's hand. They saw the great miracle of the splitting of the sea. We describe it such as when a human does a great accomplishment, you will say you saw their hand. So we use that same terminology because it's terminology that we're comfortable with in describing God. In the same way, God is aware of, and even using the word aware is a human term, but God is um, aware of what we are doing and what we are saying. And so therefore, when God responds to us, to what we are saying or what we are doing or what we need, we say God heard or God saw. God didn't really hear in the way humans hear or see because God has no ears and no (coughs) eyes. But rather, when God responds to us, we describe that as God hearing or seeing. In the same way, God communicates with people. How does God communicate with people? It is not through sound. God does not communicate through sound. God rather communicates with people in a way of revelation. Some time ago we did a class on prophecy where we spoke more in detail about it, but just in very short, um, <coughs> when God communicates with somebody, it is a revelation where they, ha- they are aware of what God is telling them without sound and without sight. It is just in our head that we know this is what God is telling me. It is, if you will, a sixth sense, just as you can have a sense of um, just as you can have a sense of um, sight, and you can have, you know what you see, I see it. You know what you hear, I hear it. In the same way, somebody who has a prophecy has a sixth sense, this is what God is communicating with me. Now, somebody who is not having a prophecy, who has never experienced that sixth sense, doesn't know what it's like. Doesn't know how do you really know it's true. Um, how do you know that that is what you are experiencing But that is (laughs) when God communicates. However, we have no word to describe that. So we say God spoke, God's voice. Elisa, do you want to ask something? Yeah, so it's it's one miracle when you talk about the revelation from God directly to, to one person, to Moshe or anybody else. It's another thing when you talk about the collective and identical Absolutely. of God's revelation at Sinai. Absolutely. Very good point. Um, something we, can, we have to discuss on an, another time because it's not directly related, but a very, very excellent point. Yes, Stephen. So where does the Friday night davening about the Shekhinah fit in? Is that sort we'll of get an apropoma? We'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. So, we'll get So, um, So anyway, so when we speak of God um, in... Um, human terminology, and we do this throughout Scripture in many, many different ways. We speak of God, there, and there are many, many, many different human terms that we use for God. It isn't meant to be taken as face value. It's a metaphor um, in order to make, uh, the wording that Talmud uses, in order to make our ears be able to accept it. In other words, in order for us to relate to it, we use human terminology that we are comfortable with when describing God, recognizing those words are only a metaphor. They aren't meant to, they aren't meant to be taken at face value. So Maimonides then says in the Mora, in the guide, what then do we mean when we speak of God as an ish, as a man, 
What does that mean? It does speak of the God as a man in a number of places. What then does that mean? So um, the guide also points out that there are times in Scripture that we use the term woman, not referring to women. And um, he gives the example um, in um, two weeks from this week when we read Truma, we read about the building of the Mishkan, of the temporary temple in the desert. Um, it says they, um, speaking about the curtains that they used, there were drapings that they used as a covering in the temple. And so speaking about the drapings and connecting the drapings, it says they should be connected, Isha el achota, one woman to her sister. Now they, we're talking about drapings. They're not really women. They're drapings. So what do we mean? Um, what do we mean when we say Isha? Same as what we mean when we say Ish. Oh, not same, but same, similar idea. When we say Ish, woman and man, doesn't mean woman and man, but it's used as a metaphor. What is woman and man in scripture used as a metaphor? So he explains that woman is used as a metaphor for connection. When speaking about connecting things, it will use the term woman in scripture. But it's a metaphor for connection. When speaking about, um, when speaking about leadership, it uses the term ish. It uses the term man in scripture. So when speaking of God as a leader, it will use the term um, ish. However, clearly, God is beyond male or female, beyond any gender at all. Why then, throughout much of Scripture, do we use a masculine term for God? We always say, he said, he did. God is always a he created. It is always a masculine term for God. That is because in Hebrew, there is every, every verb in Hebrew must either be written in masculine form or in feminine form. English is a, that, that our mother tongue for most of us, is a unique language, um, stands alone in, of most languages, in that verbs don't have gender. When you say, I said, the word said has no gender to it. Or I did, did has no gender. But in many languages, including in Hebrew, every verb must either be in masculine form or in feminine form. It's either in male gender or in female gender. It's got to be in one of the two. There is no genderless verb. And in fact, most nouns are one gender or the other. In other words, most nouns, it's, and same as adjectives, there's no, um, all adjectives have gender as well. It. Sorry? There's no room for an it. There's no it in Hebrew, no. So a car, is, a car would be a girl or a boy? It's either, a, every, every item is either every noun, every item is either a male or female, and every verb or adjective is then describing the noun as a male or a, um, is describing the noun in a male or female context. And so therefore you cannot say it said in Hebrew, you can only say he said or she said. Um, you could say um, amar or amra, or in biblical Hebrew vayomer or vatomer, either he said or she said. There's no it said. So um, in Hebrew whatsoever. So why would the Torah choose the creative act to be masculine when in the physical world the creators are 
Very yeah. good question. So why did, does the Torah choose to refer to God in masculine form? So Maimonides doesn't, doesn't give an answer to this. Presumably the simple answer would be because, as he said, the male is the, um, generally the leadership is male. Um, everything, again, is male, a chair or a table. Could be everything has to be either male or female in Hebrew, and so therefore God, like every noun, is in male form. Um, it isn't always clear why one thing is in male form and one thing is in female form, because um, there's many nouns that could have could have gone either way, but the language has it in one form or another, and so God is in male form, perhaps because um, of the ish, the man being leader, as Maimonides suggested. However, we mentioned earlier, or um, Esther asked earlier, and um, I forget who else asked, um, a couple of you asked, we know that um, Adam was created in the image of God. In fact, the Torah says, B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God, Bara'oto, he created him, Zachar Unekeva Bra'am. Male and female, he created them. So in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Which would imply that the first half of the verse implies that he created him, meaning the male was in the image of God. But then it says male, female, he created them, implying that both male and female are in the image of God. So what does that mean that male and female are in the image of God? Does God then have a male and female gender? How can such a thing be? We explained that God is beyond gender, entirely beyond gender. So what we mean by God creating in the man in his image, uh, there are a number of different explanations as to what that means. And uh, we really should have a separate class as to what it means that man was created in God's image. And it doesn't necessarily mean physical image of God. Um, it may be intellectual, that man was intellectual, that man has choice, just as God has choice. Um, so there are a number of different explanations. However, Kabbalah tells us that indeed when we say man, man and woman were created in the image of God, we actually mean that the physical man was created, and for that matter the emotional or soul of man was created to mimic God. Now how can we be created in God's image if God, as we said, has no image and no form? So Kabbalah tells us that what that means is that indeed God himself is beyond image and beyond form. However, when God relates to the world, God relates to the world with what we call midot or attributes. There are different ways that God communicates with us, that God relates to us. And when God is, so to speak, enclosed in his midot, in his attributes, when God is invested in our world, God, so to speak, takes on a certain form. God can deal with us in a way of kindness. God can deal with us in a way of judgment. God can deal with us in different ways. And so the ways that God reacts to our world are called a form. 
and they are called what the Zohar calls Adam Ha'elyon, supernal man. In other words, just as there is, uh, that there, God, so to speak, takes on the image of a supernal being, of a person, so to speak. And we, both our bodies and our souls, are created to mimic not God himself, which is beyond form, but God the way he responds to creation. And in that, we indeed are a copy of um, God, and our bodies are even a copy of God, and in that, God indeed does have a sense of gender, but not the way that we are thinking of gender. Gender in a totally different way. See, there's a lot of questions. I'll take some and then, but I'm, we'll continue in a moment. Yes, Esther. I, I was just going to say one of the things could be that we are a receptacle for God because he breathed life into us. And the meaning of being in the image of God. And that could be the... That we're alive just as God is alive, yes. And in that way, how we um, treat ourselves is, is yes. holy. And be, can we also be... <coughs> represent holiness. Yes, but we are going to focus on the answer that Kabbalah gives that indeed we are in the image of God, the way God is what's called the world of Atzilut, or the way God takes on, so to speak, form, or takes on, and it's not physical form in any sense, but God takes on a reactive form to react to our world. Yes, Neely? Yes, I, I won't say exactly what she said, but it's a, like... Well, let's focus on what yes, the... Let's discuss that later. So, <laughs> so God has, in a sense, we are created in God's image. If we, humans, are in God's image, um, then God, in a sense, has male and female as well. Except, as Maimonides said, that everything shouldn't be understood as physical male and female, but everything needs to be understood as a sense of, in a, as a metaphor. And indeed, Kabbalah tells us that it's important to be able to understand things when we use terminology to be able to then understand that same terminology in a more abstract form. And just to give you a sense, before I get to what we mean by male and female, just to give you an understanding of what we mean when we say that an abstract form. So this is very central to Jewish mysticism or to Kabbalah. It's important to understand that when we use terminology, it's important to be able to take away the metaphor and understand the deeper abstract meaning behind the terminology that we're using. And a classic example is when we say something is sweet. So something can be sweet to our taste buds. That's often the way we use the term sweet. Sweet to our taste buds. When we eat it, it tastes sweet. But the truth is that sweet to our taste buds, meaning that the food is sweet, has perhaps sugar or other sweeteners, um, that when we put it on our taste, on our tongue, it ta has the sweet taste. 
Um, there are, we also use the term sweet in many other ways. You can have music that is sweet, right? Sweet and pleasant, right? In fact, you can have a relationship with someone that is sweet, right? Sometimes we call people sweet. Something that gives you that similar kind of pleasure that you can get the physical pleasure from your taste buds, from the sweetness of your taste buds, the candy, or you can get the more abstract pleasure from good music, perhaps good art. You can get pleasure from that similar kind of sweetness from a relationship. Or you can even get sweet, you can have a sweet idea. In other words, from an idea, you can also get similar kind of pleasure from the discovery of an idea. And so the concept of sweetness can then be used as a metaphor for something, not just for our taste buds, but for much more sophisticated forms of pleasure. And that's just an example of an experience that we have that can be used on a very basic level and can be used in a more and more abstract sense. And so the same is um, really with anything that we use. Things can be used on a very basic level and things can also be understood more abstract. So in that sense, we can think of male and female in people and we can think of an abstract form of male and female. What would be a more abstract form of male and female? So if we think of the most basic difference between male and female is in their um, reproductive organs and in their role in the reproductive process in which the male is the giver and the female is the recipient. And so in that way, when you have a, something giving, that would be the male side of something. And when you have something receiving, that would be the female side of something. And so therefore, um, and we actually use in our own words, we use male and female sometimes in, um, um, in mechanics um, in a similar kind of way where we use the term male and female where it's screws, but it's the, and the, you have the male side or pipes and you can have the male side and the female side. You're using the terminology, but it's not about people. So we do that. And so in, in, in Jewish mysticism, you can use the term male as the giver and the term female as the recipient. And so therefore the creator is the ultimate giver, creation of all. And so therefore the creator would be male. And creation by extension would then be female. Our relationship with the creator would then be one of a female to a male, a recipient getting from the giver. And so um, we then refer to God as the male. He would then refer to us as the female. Indeed, many of you may be familiar with the book of Shir Hashirim. Shir Hashirim is the book of Song of Songs, written by King Solomon, one of the 24 books of our scripture. And it is a book of a love song between um, a, two lovers, a man and woman, 
um, who are in love and um, their relationship goes through some rocky moments and how they get back together. Um, it's written very poetic. Um, and so uh, we, uh, f- the, the reason why it's considered part of our holy scripture, it's a love song, what would make it holy, is because it's really a metaphor of our relationship with God. God being the male, we being the female within this relationship. And it is very similar to a number of other songs that we have in scripture, describing how God chose us, and then we rejected, we did not act as we should have, rejecting his covenant, and um, therefore God punished us and sent us into exile, but then God will bring us back, and so the song of Song Shira Shirim, in a much more descriptive way, describes that, but using the metaphor of male and female. So that would then be, and that would explain to us why God is generally referred to throughout Scripture in male terminology, and also in, um, and also in our prayers, we generally refer to God as male terminal. In male terminology, we say "ata you," which is a masculine form of you, "baruch ata," rather than if you would say it in the feminine form, you would say "baruch at," right? So. Um, so we say it in the male form because we refer to God as the creator, as the giver. Yes? So I'm a little confused because a woman has two roles in reproduction, the egg and the uterus. So are you referring to... It would just be referring to the actual um, original moment of reproduction um, and um, when the male is the giver and the woman is the recipient, and we're using that as a metaphor for God as the creator, creation as the recipient. But we're not using, that would not use, it doesn't use clearly every aspect of men and women, right? It's using in a metaphor, you don't use every aspect of the metaphor necessarily. It's the aspects of reproduction. It's just the reproduction itself. It's just, yeah, just the actual connection between men and women, where the man is the giver and the woman is the recipient. There's a deeper, there is a deeper explanation though that we more generally find in Kabbalah as to a deeper understanding of male and female. And indeed Kabbalah tells us that the reason why Hebrew has no it, everything is either male or female. That is because in the world that God created, there is no it. Everything that exists is either male or female. This is not man or woman. This is male or female. Now to understand, what do we mean male and female in creation? Everything in creation, in fact, is both made up, Kabbalah tells us, of male and female. Everything, including every person, has a male side and a female side to them. And so when we think of male and female, don't think of man and woman, but rather think of the abstract concepts of male and female. What do we mean by male and female? So Kabbalah tells us that everything in creation, 
and the whole process of creation in the Creator is made up of orot and kelim, or lights and vessels. The lights being the male side and the, the vessels being the female side. What do we mean by that? So on, a most sim- on the simplest level, say you have a cup of water. Thank you, Kenny. Say you have a cup of water. Now, there are actually two things over here. There's the cup and there is the water. Now, what would happen if you had the water without the cup? (laughs) It wouldn't be there, right? It would all be on the floor or all over me. What would happen if you would have the cup without the water? You'd have nothing, right? Just an empty cup. So in order to have a cup of water, you need both. You need the cup and you need the water. What is the actual thing that you're going to drink? The water. What's holding the water in place? The cup. The cup is a female and the water is a plural in Hebrew. Sorry? Water could go both male or female. Water could go both male or female in Hebrew. Water. It's male. It's usually used male. But in Tanakh, Rashi actually tells us it could go both. But it's generally male. So water, the water, as Ellie points out, is the male. And the cup is the female. Why? Everything has two parts to it. Everything that exists. It has what we call the chomer. It has the matter. It has what it is. And then it has its shape. It has what's holding it in place. The thing itself, what it is, the energy, if you will, behind it is the male. The, what's holding it in, in place, its shape, its form, is the female side to it. So everything has then male and female. Think of it as matter and form. It has matter. The matter itself is the male. What makes it what it is, is the female. Now, when you describe things, it has, it all has, you have a piece of wood, right? There's the, it's wood. And then there's the fact that it's a piece. It's not infinite wood, but it's a specific size, shaped piece with certain texture. So the fact that it's wood would be the male side. Its size, its shape, its texture, its detail would be the female side. Everything in creation must have two sides, two parts of it. It has a male side to it and it has a female side to it. There is nothing in between. It's either or. Or it has both. It has the what it is, the energy, the matter, and it has the, or the R, and it has the shape, the form, what allows it to be the female. And Kabbalah tells us this doesn't only work in the physical, it also works in our minds as well. It works in ideas, or what we call in, in um, Kabbalah, mochin, in our intellect. You have an idea. The idea itself 
Kabbalah tells us is a barak hamavrik. It's like a flash. The idea itself has no detail to it. You have an idea. But then you can't do anything with that idea. You need to have, you need to develop it. The idea itself is male. The development of the idea is the female. Very good. In Hebrew, in Kabbalah, Chachma is male. Bina is female. Often in Kabbalah, we refer to Chachma idea as of the father. And the development of the idea we call Bina um, or the, um, oh, sorry, M, the mother. So, um, so we call them, so therefore, uh, so we, we, in ideas you have male and female side in intellect. And the same is also in our emotional response to things. In our emotional response, you can have the emotions itself. Something triggers you. Someone got you excited. Someone got you upset. You have, you have a certain feeling. That is the male side. What do you do about that feeling? You got excited. You jump up and down. Or you say something, you express yourself. You get angry, you share it with people. You begin to scream, to shout. Um, you share it. So the emotion itself, in Kabbalah referred to as za, um, is the male side. The sharing it, how you express it, the expression is the Female, we refer to in Kabbalah as Malchut. Sometimes Za, the male side, is referred to as Ben, the son. And Malchut is referred to as Bat, the daughter. And so um, every, in our intellect, in our emotions, and in every part of our, the world, there is a male side and a female side. This, of course, also... Um, every person has both the male side and the female side. We have my soul, the I, and then we have the details of me, a male side and a female side. Um, we have in our actions, right? We have the way I am and then the way I express myself, a male side and a female side. But in reproduction, Kabbalah tells us the, ma the male only supplies the sperm. The female is the one that develops it. And that talks about, you asked earlier about the other half of the reproductive process, the development. The female does the development. That is the feminine side. So everything then has masculine and feminine sides to them, every part of creation. Now, the creator is really the ultimate male. Why is the creator the ultimate male? Because the creator is the ultimate life force that stands behind everything. What makes everything exist? What is the ultimate matter, the ultimate being that is underlies all of creation? God, the creator, stands behind all of creation. God is, so to speak, the soul of creation. What makes everything exist. And so therefore the creator in truth 
is really the ultimate male. Creation then, which has all the detail, all the shape, all the form, creation then would be female. On a deeper level though, Kabbalah tells us, that within the creator himself, there is both male and female. The creator, as we said, responds to our world in different ways. God responds to our world in a way of chachma, in a way of a idea, and God responds to our world in a way of bina, of understanding and developing that idea. That's masculine and feminine. God responds to our world in a way of emotion, so to speak, this whole metaphor, in a way of emotion, and in a way of communicating that emotion. God responds to our world in a way where God stands beyond our world as the force behind our world, what we call Savev Kolamim, beyond our world, or Makif surrounding, beyond it all. And then God stands within every single minute detail, making each thing be exactly the way it is. God's presence, as he's found within every detail, would be feminine. God, the way God stands beyond everything, would be masculine. In fact, Kabbalah tells us that's why we have two terms for God. We have HaKadosh Baruch Hu, referring to the Holy One, blessed be He, masculine. That is God, the way God stands beyond creation as the underlying force behind creation, the masculine force. And then we have God, the way God is invested in every single detail and making every single thing work and do exactly what it's supposed to do. That is called the Shekhinah. That is called the presence. The Shekhinah is feminine. And that is why, though through most of Scripture God is referred to in masculine form, there are many, many places in Scripture where God is referred to in feminine form. God is referred to in feminine form as the Shekhinah, as the presence. Um, as God's presence within our world. God, the way He's found in every, uh, the way God is found in every single detail. Indeed, uh, in our prayers as well, we generally refer to God in masculine form, God the way he stands beyond creation. However, we also refer to God in our prayers as the Shekhinah, as the presence found within creation. Notably, on Friday night, when we have our L'chadodi prayer, L'chadodi litkrat kala means, Come, my beloved, towards the bride. Pnei Shabbat nekabla, we will accept thee. Shabbat. What is the Shabbat? And it's referred to in feminine. Who is the beloved and who is the Shabbat? So Kabbalah explains that the Shabbat refers to God's presence as found in this world. God, the beloved is God the way God is beyond this world. And our goal our goal is to connect God the way God is found within this world with God the way he is beyond this world. In fact, Kabbalah tells us that the purpose of create the, uh, the goal of people of man on earth, the per reason why we are here, 
Our purpose is to unite the Holy One, blessed be He, with the Shekhinah. To unite the masculine side of God with the feminine side of God. That is our role. That is the purpose of creation. Our purpose is to unite God's masculine with feminine. That's what we do on Shabbat. And in fact, that's what we do with every, with every mitzvah that we do. We say our goal is to unite God's masculine with God's feminine. What do we mean by that? What do we mean unite God's masculine with God's feminine? So what we mean is God, the way God is underlying our world, beyond our world, uh, the force behind everything, the ultimate infinite light behind, infinite force behind everything, the masculine side of God stands beyond our world. Um, while God as invested in our world is here, but is hidden. We don't see God. We go about our day-to-day -day life where everything that is happening to us is God's doing and we don't even pay attention. We don't even notice. We don't see God. So the Shekhinah, the presence is hidden in our world. It's what Kabbalah calls, the Zohar calls, Galut HaShekhinah, the exile of the presence. Exile of God's presence. God's presence is not noticeable in our world. Our goal, though, is to make God's presence noticeable in the world so that we recognize that God, as God stands beyond creation, is invested in every single part of creation. That relation, connection, connecting Kudshabrichu, the male side of God, and the Shekhinah, the female side of God, God as He stands beyond creation, and God as God is in creation but hidden, and we connect that by revealing God within creation. And that is what we call, so to speak, the ultimate marriage. It is a marriage between creation and God, or the marriage between the Shekhinah, the presence and God, the way He stands, beyond creation. That is why we refer to our, our own relationship with God as that of a marriage. In fact, we call the... Um, we call the, um, the giving of the Torah, the moment God came down on Sinai, a marriage between us and God. And that is why we refer to God as, um, that is why we're, we say in the future times, we will, so to speak, we speak of it being as a marriage between a groom and a bride. And there we're again referring to God the way he stands beyond creation and God within creation. And that, uh, and so, and, and that is really our purpose um, here within creation to create this marriage by making God revealed within creation. And that, Kabbalah tells us, is also part of the difference between men and women. We have a class scheduled that we're going to do about gender in general. This is what focus now on God and gender. We'll do a general class on gender. But that is part of the difference between men and women, not just in their reproductive roles, but in their goals, in their purpose within creation. In that, um, the male role within creation 
is to reveal what we call Kudshabrichu, the Holy One, blessed be He, to reveal God as He stands below, above creation. And the feminine role within creation is to reveal God as He's within creation in every single detail, in every single part of creation. And while both men and women have a role to do both, reveal God as God stands above creation, reveal God within creation. However, we, our focus, the focus, the male focus is a focus of revealing God beyond creation and the female focus is a focus of revealing God within creation. And that is why we believe in the great power of a marriage and we believe that every man and woman every is real, are really two halves of one soul because they share a purpose, one with a masculine-sided purpose and one with a feminine-sided purpose and we're really all half and together two halves of a soul and that's why marriage in Judaism is considered such a... Um, powerful thing so but we all have the, this power and ultimately it's important to remember everyone has a masculine side within us everybody has the power to um, bring God within creation or do what needs to get done to do um, uh, to do to follow um, God's instructions and do as he said and everybody has a feminine side with us within us which is the power to change and transform and to develop the world around us. Remember, the, ma the masculine side, male side, is the, is the thing itself, or what you got, and the, femi the, the base and the feminine side is the development. And we have both. We have the ability to follow God's commandments, instructions, do. That would be the masculine side. And we have the ability to, de to develop and enhance and um, change things and transform and that would be our feminine side and we all have that power and that is ultimately our purpose so 